time for Wayne Brittenden's counterpoint. On December the 3rd, New Zealand hosts the next round of talks on the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. It's a nine-day meeting and it's being held in Auckland. Current member countries involved in the negotiations are New Zealand, the United States, Australia, Singapore, Chile, Peru, Malaysia, Vietnam, Brunei, uh, Canada and Mexico. With Japan and Thailand kind of knocking on the door, interested but not quite yet committed. And that door is not a particularly transparent one. Most of what we know about the negotiations around the TPP agreement have so far come from leaked documents. In this week's Counterpoint, Wayne Brittenden looks at the far-reaching scope of the TPP beyond simply matters of trade. Morning, Wayne. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to the 2028 Olympics. Winners for the men's 800 metres are Mitsubishi, Microsoft and Mumbai Motors. The athletes mount the rostrum, the logos are raised and the company jingles played. Well, such a scenario isn't all that difficult to imagine given the eroding sovereignty of the nation-state. Economic powers rapidly transcending political power. Just take a look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Elected governments are stitching it up behind closed doors. It's so secret that, absurdly, new members, Canada and Mexico, weren't even shown the negotiated text before they joined. They had to commit themselves to unseen conditions and also agree not to reopen any of them. As both candidates made clear in the U.S. election campaign, the whole thing's primarily a means of countering China's rising influence in the region. Given that some TPP members also belong to ASEAN which has a free trade agreement with China, policy conflicts seem inevitable. These talks on free trade actually include some heavily protectionist provisions like monopoly pricing rights. Perhaps more than about trade, there are about investor rights and much more. If a member country wants to take a stronger line against, say, alcohol, tobacco or junk food, or introduce more robust measures for environmental protection, it can be threatened by a massive lawsuit brought about by the private companies and other member countries, unless the offending government backs off. Such cases wouldn't be heard in courts, but in private tribunals, where the judge one day may on the next day be acting for the litigants. The state might be made to shell out millions of taxpayer dollars in compensation. Australia is the only signatory that won't so far recognise this right to sue, but there are a number of other gridlocks in the talks. Basically, big business wants more involvement in the decision-making processes of government, policy and regulation. The TPP gives unprecedented new powers to market players in all kinds of areas, including labour, mining, education, food, energy, internet surveillance, intellectual property, private-public partnerships, local government, even our access to affordable, life-saving medicines. Here's a statement on the TPP. No one has the right to trade away our hard-fought legal protections for free speech and the right to health, much less to do it behind closed doors. That's not from a fiery activist. It's the view of Suzanne Nozzle, formerly a high official in the U.S. State Department, now director for Amnesty International USA. She sees the agreement in its present shape as a human rights issue in need of urgent safeguards. Last month, the German public TV documentary on foreign land investment noted that New Zealand was one of the Western countries that was least regulated and most vulnerable. 
New Zealand's already sold off more national assets than any other Western country. Under the TPP, foreign investors would expect input in determining policy and regulatory processes. Without sovereign safeguards, such agreements, minus the agreement of citizens, undermine democracy. The TPP's binding policies would tie the hands of any future government of any stripe. The margin for manoeuvre of a new administration would be severely limited. If it doesn't control the purse strings, it can't implement significant political changes. We could vote in a Keynes, Galbraith, or even a Che Guevara, but in the end, it mightn't make much of a difference. Thank you, Wayne. Now, on the line, I have two people. Celeste Drake, a trade and globalisation policy specialist at the American Federation of Labour and Congress of Industrial Organisations, more familiarly known as the AFL-CIO. She has also served as a staffer for two senior members of the US Congress. And in our Auckland studio, Jane Kelsey, Professor of Law at Auckland University and an outspoken critic of the agreement. Welcome and thank you both for your time. Jane, can I come to you first here? Um, if the talks are so cloaked in confidentiality, how reliable is what Wayne is talking about here? Well, the talks have been going now for a couple of years, uh, and those of us who have concerns about it have been monitoring it very closely. Um, as Wayne mentioned, there have been some leaks. There's also been quite a bit of detective work being done, uh, looking at the kinds of speeches and statements that are coming out. We have conversations, um, private conversations, with some negotiators who express their concerns uh, to us. And there's already a, a quite large web of free trade agreements, especially involving the U.S., amongst these countries. So we are able to put together reasonably well uh, an understanding of what some of the far-reaching implications and objectives of the agreement are. Wayne also mentioned uh, gridlocks of a kind. Is there a likelihood that Australia or some of the members dissenting on particular aspects of it might simply walk away? Many countries have concerns about particular areas, but some of the areas are very new as well. And they're really just starting to explore what some of the consequences might be. One of the ways this agreement is described is as going further behind the border into domestic processes and decisions than any previous so-called free trade agreement has done. And that's now starting to worry quite a number of governments about what the implications will be for both their domestic processes and the kind of domestic policy choices they can make. And we're seeing that nervousness in some technical areas like intellectual property or the IT sector, uh, but also just more broadly in, in what's called a regulatory coherence chapter. And so this is part of what's slowing down the negotiations, there is some real concern that the US is making very, very far-reaching and aggressive demands uh, in these talks. Is I mean, is the you've laid out a number of grounds on which people have reservations. I mean, is investor rights really the driving force behind what the Americans would want to see from this? Oh, there's a, a number of constituencies, and 
I'm sure Celeste will will refer to them. I mean, you've got the big pharma constituency, you've got the um, Hollywood and and the music industry, uh, you've got uh, the agribusinesses with GM Foods, you've got the big finance sectors. All of them have particular interests, uh, and they do cross over with the rights of investors to sue. But it's interesting that one of the most important and frequent areas that investors are using the right that uh, Wayne referred to uh, is in the environment and natural resources area. And indeed, just this week, one US company has threatened to take Quebec to one of these offshore private tribunals for a moratorium on fracking. Mm. And so we're seeing um, now regulation that's sort of precautionary style regulation that the companies are threatening to bring disputes in the hope of having what we call the chilling effect or if necessary pursuing them as Philip Morris is doing on the plain packaging tobacco uh, in Australia. So it's not simply the abstract issue about the rights of the investors to sue, it's that very important domestic decisions are potentially going to be constrained by the power of the offshore companies in a whole lot of behind-the-border participatory processes from the beginning rights to be consulted right through to the ability to challenge in offshore courts if they don't get their way. What is New Zealand's, officially speaking, uh, most greatest difficulty with the TPP? Uh, if you're looking at the um, commercial interests of New Zealand, um, it's getting dairy access to the US, which um, is the holy grail behind the New Zealand government's commercial goals here, and uh, as I'm sure Celeste will say, is extremely unlikely to happen. Uh, the New Zealand government has also been quite defensive around areas such as the intellectual property chapter because one of the key targets of the big pharmaceutical companies is Pharmac. It doesn't want to dismantle Pharmac, but it wants the pharmaceutical companies to have much more direct influence over the kind of decisions that Pharmac makes that makes our medicines affordable. Uh, and so those are just two of the crucial examples. I mean, there are reasons uh, all around the, the membership and the potential membership of this uh, agreement about the erosion of sovereignty. Uh, for New Zealand, um, like many others, in the end this is a, an intensely political decision that will have to be made, right? That, I think, is one of uh, our greatest concerns, that there are so many technical problems with this agreement. But if you get the political leaders in the room who decide that for their own reasons they want to make this deal happen, we may be foisted in the long term with potentially irreversible obligations that have been pursued for different goals. And it's very clear from the US end and several other countries that this is seen as a counterpoint to China. Tim Grosser has actually said that New Zealand will walk away from the table if this became an anti-China exercise. And I think he's going to have to think very carefully about the point at which he does that because it is now very clear that this is part of the US military and economic strategic push back into the Asia-Pacific region because it feels it's losing its influence. Yeah. Thank you for that. Jane Kelsey. Celeste Drake, how... Central to President Obama's foreign policy ambitions is this. Uh, it's it's very central. President Obama adopted the idea of 
expanding the P4 trade agreement from President Bush, which, with whom he had um, significant policy differences in many other areas. But he took this on. Um, they picked the initial nine countries, now 11 with the addition of Canada and Mexico. And given that the U.S. Um, House just voted on the Russia PNTR uh, vote just this week, um, that clears the decks for this to be really the driving force of trade and foreign policy for the second term. What does it mean for the future, say, of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement? Does it simply enlarge on that? Where, does, where will NAFTA fit after that, or did it, would it become almost redundant? Um, it, it won't be redundant, and this is one of the tricky issues with this particular agreement. We understand that all of the countries involved have committed to existing trade agreements remaining in place and the TPP overlapping that. So there will be a network of different obligations that, say, New Zealand has an obligation to Australia existing, but it will have a new agreement based on the TPP. And it really gives um, countries and commercial interests a choice as to which obligation they want to pursue. Was there a better one in the TPP versus some prior agreement, and using the dispute settlement mechanisms specific to that individual agreement. Yeah. I mean, do you agree with um, Jane Kelsey that, in many respects, politically, this is really a, about countering China's regional influence? How big a factor is that? I think it's a huge factor. The um, U.S. administration sort of it, it talks about welcoming China and China being a part of the TPP should China want to join, but it also talks about um, this really being a way to counter China's commercial influence and really setting up a set of rules that constrain some of the things that China is doing now that you know the U.S. government and, and we as the AFL-CIO see as an abuse of its commitments towards the WTO. But it's not clear China has its own trade agreement going with the ASEAN plus six. And if countries like New Zealand, Australia are members of both, it's not clear that the TPP will really influence or constrain China in any way. Uh, I mean, the test of, uh, of good intentions would be if China applied to join. Would that put the cat among the pigeons? <laughs> well, it would be really interesting. And, and I... Some of the new chapters that Jane mentioned uh, are really aimed at a future potential for China to join. So, for example, um, the U.S. has proposed a chapter constraining the ways in which state-owned enterprises operate to ensure that private enterprises and state-owned enterprises play on a level playing field. And that's really important for American workers who have lost some jobs to unfair competition from Chinese state-owned enterprises, but it's really um, it's in a it's a chapter that has not gone over well with the other countries, and there's a lot of apprehension about whether it's an attempt to force countries to privatize, to get rid of their public services, and whether it's sort of a camel's nose under the tent to do some you know pretty awful things in terms of privatization.
Well, thank you for that, and thank you both. I've been talking to Celeste Drake, a trade and globalisation policy specialist at the AFL-CIO, and Jane Kelsey, Professor of Law at Auckland University. On the Arts on Sunday, Lynn Freeman is going to be talking to singer-songwriter Donald Gashin and other artists regarding their concerns about the impact of the TPP on our arts and culture sectors.